Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. This is the words of our Lord. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. And you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Since the reading of the Lord's Word, uh, let's pray and ask His, His Spirit. Father, we, uh, as we come before Your Word, we thank You that You have delivered it to us, but we ask that You would illuminate it for us. Spirit of God, please work in our hearts. Please open up our minds and our hearts and our lives to Your searching truths uh, that we would submit to them, both where we, You convict us of our sin and where You comfort us with the Gospel. Please lead us to Jesus, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. So there's a there's a question that people generally, uh, especially those doubting God, who don't doubt who who doubt that God doesn't exist, there's a question that they ask. Uh, maybe you've asked yourself this question or heard it asked too. Um, if God is love, why does He punish sins? If God is love, why does He punish sins? Or to ask it another way, how can a loving God subject His creations to eternal torture? Now, these are, these are loaded questions. Uh, and we can't fully unpack them today, but the first thing that we should do, just reverse the question. Right? If, if God is love, why does He punish sins? Reverse that. If God is just, how could He save sinners? If God is just, how could He save sinners? How could a just God rescue the wicked? That's a vastly different question. Because the first question puts uh, me in the judge's seat and it puts God on trial. Right? How, God, explain to me how you can punish sins if you say you're loving. The second question puts God in the judge's seat and it puts me on trial. God, how could you save me if I'm wicked and you're just? Think about it this way. What would it be like if, if God were only love or only just? If God were only love and no justice, there's no power, there's no authority, there's no consequences for sin, and you have no need for a savior. If God is only love, you have no need for a Savior. Conversely, if God is only just, then there's no hope of salvation. Because you are a sinner. And if God is only just, then He must judge your sin. It means there's no hope. 
because he is he is a perfect and righteous judge who will not take a bribe, who will not wink an eye at sin. He doesn't let sin just go under the rug. But if God were only that, we would have no hope of salvation. So we need God to be both just and loving. We need God to be both just and love. So the question, how can a just God rescue the wicked? We will begin to see how this works. The answer to that question in our passage today. So as we said before, the laws in, in this section of Scripture, these few passes, the, these few chapters, these chapters expand upon the Ten Commandments. And they apply the Ten Commandments to life in Israel. So we've seen uh, how different commandments expand. For instance, you shall not murder, um, and expanded and applied it. Our passage today, 23, 1 through 9, uh, expands the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And it applies that to Israel, to their lives in the land of Israel. Here's how life looks. Here's how you apply the Ninth Commandment to your daily life as an Israelite. But this passage has a broader purpose as well. This broader purpose is that these laws reveal God's character. And we've seen in previous passages how they, all these laws show God's character. We saw how the laws about slavery show that God prioritizes His people's freedom. We've seen how God desires peace for His covenant people. We've seen how He makes His people holy to reverse the curse of the fall because He wants to be with them. And these set of laws before us today reveal something about God's character. They reveal to us that God is a just judge who will not acquit the wicked. But these laws also reveal that God is a God who rescues his enemies. The Lord is the just judge who has rescued you, even though you are his enemy. That's where we're going today. So we'll spend first a little time unpacking these various laws as they expand upon the ninth commandment. So the first verse begins, You shall not spread a false report. Now, the ESV translated spread a false report, but you could also translate it uh, receive a worthless report or receive a report about nothing. Calvin's reflection is that uh, we should not cherish or confirm the lies of another. In other words, just because you didn't start the lie doesn't mean you aren't responsible for continuing it. So even if you don't realize that it's a lie, you're still responsible for continuing someone else's lies. In the next few verses, the next few laws, uh, through verse 3, at face value, these te- they teach Israel uh, about testifying as a witness in a legal situation. So he says in verse 1, You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now there's a word that appears uh, a few times in this passage as a whole, and twice in these few verses. Uh, And it's translated, uh, You shall not, in verse 2, Don't side with the many. 
so as to pervert justice. So citing and pervert are the same word in Hebrew. And this word means um, to turn aside or to bend or to twist. So the image is that if you bend under the pressure of the masses, under the pressure of the majority of the crowd, if you bend, you bend justice. If you, um, in other words, it is better to stand for the truth by yourself than it is to bend with the majority. Because if you make compromises, if you compromise the truth, if you compromise what is right and what is good, out of fear for what other people will say about you, not only do you, are you bending, but you're also bending justice. You're twisting and distorting what is true. That's scary, though. It's, it's scary to be the only person standing up and saying, this is wrong. And I get it. I'm, personally, I'm terrified of disagreeing or confronting people that I want approval from. If, if I want someone's approval, I don't want to disagree with them. I don't want to confront their sin because I really want them to like me. Um, and I'm scared. Right? I'm scared they'll think I'm stupid. I'm scared they won't like me. I'm scared they'll cut off the relationship. And so I'd rather hide what I believe. I'd rather hide and not confront sin, stay silent uh, and not confront it. I'd rather keep my disagreements private um, because that feels safer. But what the Lord is pushing us to understand is that we're actually lying to ourselves when we do that. When we compromise the truth out of fear, we are bending ourselves, we're twisting ourselves, and we're twisting justice. We're twisting what's true. And the Lord is saying, this is wrong. It is better to stand for what's true, even if that means you stand alone. Even if that means there are consequences. We live in a day and age where you could lose your job or your friends or people's approval or the world's approval depending on what you say, on what you approve. The culture desperately wants us to approve of certain sins. And when we stand up and say, no, this is a sin, we're going to have have consequences for that. But the Lord is saying, it's better to stand for what's true rather than compromise and twist ourselves out of fear. In the last verse of this small section, verse 3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Uh, At first it strikes us as, well, I thought we were supposed to love the poor. I thought we were supposed to care for the poor. Why would we not show preference to a poor man in his lawsuit? And the reason is that justice can be perverted and twisted and bent out of fear. We side with the majority out of fear for what people will say about us. We join hands with the wicked because peer pressure... We twist what's true, but there's another way that we might twist what is true and just. Justice can also be bent out of an attempt to be compassionate. Why would you show preference to a poor man's lawsuit? Because you feel bad for him. You feel bad for his estate, for his circumstances. But the Lord is saying, don't do that. Why? Because God's justice is equitable which means it's impartial. 
God's justice does not care about wealth, status, age, or accomplishment. God's justice is truly fair. But it's easy to overlook the sins of someone who has hard circumstances because we get it. And conversely, we might overlook our own sins because we're in a hard circumstance. You might say, well, it's okay that I'm bitter and grumpy today because I haven't had my coffee yet. It's not okay to be grumpy. It doesn't matter if you've had a coffee or not. And the same is true of how we relate to other people. The Lord is saying that we should not overlook sins simply because of someone's circumstances, that we should not show preference simply of someone's circumstances, because God's justice is equitable. It's not driven by emotions. God's justice is driven by what's right and true. And this principle of equity and justice is picked up not just here, but also in verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in your lawsuit. In other words, don't go to the other extreme. Right? Don't bend this way either. You can bend in two directions. God says, don't bend at all. Be straight. Do not pervert, do not bend, do not twist justice, either out of a false sense of compassion or out of a desire to, to hurt someone else. And so in the next few verses, so 6, 7, and 8, these verses, um, if the first three verses are directed to witnesses, verses 6, 7, and 8 are directed to judges. This is how you shall judge. Um, So do not bend justice, do not pervert justice, in verse 6. Run from a false charge, in verse 7. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. In verse 8, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. So there's a lot that we could say of these verses. I'd like to focus on one thing. Look at what lies and bribes produce. False charges lead to innocent people dying. Lies produce death. This doesn't just apply to the courtroom. This applies to all of life. Lies destroy relationships. Lies destroy marriages. Lies destroy churches. Lies destroy peace and shalom. When we live by lies, we have nothing to hold on to. There's no truth. And that destroys. Likewise, bribes blind In verse 8, you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted. Now, a bribe is attractive because a bribe offers you something that you want. It's It's not a good bribe if you don't want it. But a good bribe, and I don't mean a good bribe, an effective bribe is one that offers something that you want. It's tempting. Which means that a bribe doesn't have to be money in order to blind you. give you a couple examples. Maybe you're willing to turn a blind eye to your friend's sin because of the benefits of the friendship. Maybe you're willing to turn a blind eye uh, to someone's big red flags because you want to marry them. Maybe uh, you find some way to justify passing over sins, being blind to them 
But that's taking a bribe. Bribes blind. So what we should see from all these laws, uh, we should see first the kind of people God wants us to be. God wants us to be the kind of people that are not bent, that do not side with the majority just because of the majority. He wants his people to walk a straight and narrow path. He wants his people to be people of the truth. People who love the truth more than they love the reputation, more than they love money, more than they love gifts and approval. And he wants his people to pursue equitable justice. But there's a reason why God wants this. There's a reason why God wants his people to be like this, and it's because he's like this. Verse 7. You shall not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I, the Lord will not acquit the wicked. God wants his people to be just and not bent because he is the just judge. Because these laws are about who is God? What is God like? We are not to bend justice because God does not bend justice. We are not to side with the majority in fear but side with the truth because that's who God is. God is not bent. God is not crooked. God does not pervert justice he does not bend justice out of fear. He, cannot, uh, he does not bend justice out of compassion. He does not accept false charges. He does not accept bribes because he sees the truth of things. He cannot be blinded by bribes. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be deceived. He cannot have entertain false witnesses. And because God knows the thoughts and intentions of every man's heart, he never makes the wrong decision. God is a just judge who gets it right every time. Deuteronomy 32 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is a rock. He doesn't change. You can lean upon and rely upon his, his unchanging, just nature. He always makes the right decision. But this introduces a problem. If God is just, and he will not acquit the wicked, what happens if I'm wicked? God is just and he punishes sin, what happens if I'm a sinner? That means that God has to judge my sin. That means that God will not acquit me. That means that even if I'm a poor man with hard circumstances, God will not acquit me of my wickedness, of my sin. There is no excuse for my sin. And so as Paul says in Romans, there is no one righteous. In 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. It means that we are bent towards sin. We are wicked. We are sinners. And so if God is a just God, where is our hope? And this takes us back to the question that we asked in the introduction. If God is just, how can he save sinners? Well, there are a couple of verses that I didn't read yet. 
Well, I read them, but we haven't talked about them yet because those verses are the answer. Verses 4 and 5. And I want you to first notice uh, how these, these two verses seem unrelated to the, the, the ninth commandment and the other laws of this passage. So verse 4, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now, they may seem like they're out of nowhere, but these, these verses are here for a purpose. God put them smack dab in the middle. Even though it seems like they don't really relate to the Ninth Commandment. That's because they're there for a reason. They teach Israel a fundamental lesson. That Israel is to rescue, they are to rescue their enemies. They are to be just, because God is just, but they're also to rescue their enemies. Why? Because that's who God is. God rescues his enemies. God is a just judge, but God rescues his enemies. And not just people that he's opposed to or on the opposite side of a lawsuit from, but look in verse 5. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, right? not, just someone, not just your enemy, not just someone maybe you hate, but someone who hates you. You are to rescue that person. You are to help that person. If you need an example of how God does this, of God rescuing his enemies, of rescuing those who hate him, all you have to do is remember what happened in Exodus. Because what did Israel do when God brought them out of Egypt and took them through the wilderness? They grumbled. They complained. They disobeyed. They accused God of evil. They put God on trial. And they demanded answers as though they were the ones in the judgment seat and God were the sinner. And at any point in Israel's rebellion and hard-heartedness, did God ever stop loving them? Did God ever stop loving Israel? Through all of their grumbling and complaining and all the times that they accused God of evil? No, he didn't. Because he is the God who loves even those who hate him. God is the God who loves even those who hate him. And that's why these verses are here in this passage. They're here to answer that question. If God is just, how can he save you? If God doesn't acquit a wicked, how can you be saved? The answer is that God loves his enemies. God rescues his enemies. He is the just God who cannot let sin go unpunished. But he's also the God who loves his enemies. So God is both just and love. And we need him to be both. But if he's going to rescue you, if you're wicked and a sinner and he's going to rescue you, his justice has to be satisfied. His love cannot overrule the demands of justice because justice is equitable. Which means that his justice has to be satisfied. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, to die on the cross. Because at the moment that Jesus died, all all of God's love and justice converged. 
The cross is where all of God's love and justice are, are most clearly seen. It's like a supernova of all of his love and all of his justice together at the cross at the same time. Because at the cross, God sat in judgment, pronounced the verdict, and executed his son. Which was the greatest tragedy in the history of the world because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was not wicked. He was perfect. But we know that God cannot make a wrong decision. We know that God cannot uh, execute an innocent because he just told us in Exodus 23, he will not kill an innocent man. So why did he kill Jesus? The only possible way is that Jesus was in fact guilty. Not of sins he committed, but of sins you committed. As Paul says, he became your sin. Jesus was guilty of your sin. And so, on the cross, God's justice executed him, and his justice was satisfied. But this also makes it the greatest act of love in the history of the world, because Jesus did this willingly. Jesus picked up his cross Jesus went to the cross because he wanted to. He went to the cross out of love. And who exactly were the objects of his love? You and me. Enemies. People who hate God and who still grumble and complain and accuse him and disobey him every day. Those people were the objects of his love. But God is the God who rescues his enemies. God is the God who came down and and sacrificed his own life to rescue his enemies. Or to put it another way, Jesus loved you at your worst. Jesus loved you at your absolute worst. Because his love depends not on his character. His love depends... Wait, I said that wrong. His love does not depend upon your character. His love does not depend upon anything you do. His love is conditional upon who he is. So if God ever changes, his love will change. But God doesn't change. That means that his love for, for you will never change. And likewise, God calls us to be like him. That Jesus is the God who is just, but who also rescued his enemies, who loved those who hated him. And so we, as his people, are to be like him. We should love our enemies. You should love even people who hate you. And this might be someone close to you. This might be your neighbor, this might be your spouse, this might be your friend, this might be someone in the world, this might be someone who you want their approval. You are to love those who hate you. Why? How can you do that? The only way you can do that is if your love is conditional, not upon their character. 
You can only love your enemy if you're, it's not conditional upon what they do. You can only love your enemy if it is conditional upon what Jesus did. That is the basis of how we love our enemies, is because it's rooted in God's character and who He is. So as we come before the Lord this morning, as we come to His Word and as we come to His sacrament, we come as wicked people. We come as, as those who have been rescued by His grace. And we come to Him and He says to us, I love you. So I'd like to invite the elders forward so we can partake uh, of this supper before us. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you again for this meal. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you sign and seal your words to us. That you bring us into uh, the cross. That in Christ uh, we have all that we need. Lord, we pray that you would teach us these things, that you would help us to love our enemies, to love even those who hate us, because we have been loved by you. Lord, please help us to to cling to you, because this love cannot come from us. It has to come uh, from your character, Lord. May you lead us and guide us and shape us, that we would become more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.